You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. We are um, in the middle, well, we're actually nearing like the end. Thank you, Emily, for the marathon passage of Ephesians there. That was like nine readings in one, but we, we're making some good progress through the book of Ephesians. We've been going for, I think it's like been five weeks now. And we're in chapter four, where Paul issues this really strong, he's coming on really hot, like this exhortation for us, this laundry list of things that we shouldn't do as Christians. Things that if you think about a Christian or you look at the church, you should not see these things. It was in the middle of our reading this morning, this phrase, therefore be imitators of God, right in chapter five, verse one. It's the strangest thing to say if you think about that. In the middle of this laundry list of bad behavior, Paul says, be imitators of God. Is that realistic? I, when I read that, there's part of me that knows like you shouldn't, you shouldn't chuckle at this, Sean, because he, he's serious. The other part of me chuckles a little bit because God, I'm supposed to imitate God. This is what you're telling me, Paul. Can we, is that even possible? Is this realistic for us to even consider? Maybe, maybe if we go to church and I preach about this and my sermon is like stellar and then we go into the world, I know that seems hard to believe. Then we go into the world and we really mean it this time. Maybe then we can be imitators of God. Maybe it'll stick. But if we could just be real for a minute here, we know that it doesn't work that way, right? Can we just be that honest? It does not work that way. It's never worked that way. In fact, if some of you can even recall the frustrations of desiring to live a holy life, imitating the goodness of God and walking away again and again, hitting that wall of failure every time. The old self comes back from the grave to get us, it seems. Our actions are really telling of who we really are, aren't they, when we think about it. The things if that we really do, it's said, if you wanna know what someone believes, don't ask them what they believe, watch them. What would others say we believe by our actions? Actions, they're not impositions on who we are. Actions come from who we really are, right? So the possibility of having these divine actions, these imitating God kind of behaviors on the outside, it actually has to come from a deeper place than our will, our want, our we're really gonna mean it this time, we're gonna give it a go. It's gotta come from a different place, someplace truly renovated, someplace truly renewed deep within us. If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals this morning, you can open up to Ephesians 4, chapter 4, verse 17. I'm gonna, we're gonna walk through this and I'm going to kind of skip around because there was like, you know, a few chapters we just read this morning. So um, here we go in verse 17. Let's, let's consider this together. Paul says, you must no longer live as Gentiles live. This is how he gets us started. In the futility of their minds. This is how Gentiles live. And in verse 18, they are, he's describing them. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Listen, because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. This expression, hardness of heart. It's not so much that they're just stubborn people. It's not that they're just like granite hearts who 
can't learn new tricks and don't change. It's not that they're stubborn, but it's actually deeper than that. It's a, and it's, and it's actually way more um, out in front of you. You can kind of see it. It's more cognitive. It's this clear-headed, deliberate, repeated rejection of God. If you notice their minds, their understanding, and their alienation from God that Paul describes, that outward life, those actions, right? Or a description of a ruined life is what he's talking about. All of those outward things, they come from a place that is deeply inward. They're a result of a decision that someone makes in their heart. The heart, this is just the way it works with us. We know this. The heart is like the executive control room, as Dallas Willard calls it, of our lives. It's the place where desires are formed and cultivated and then eventually where we act on those desires. It's the thing that actually kind of guides the way we function on a day-to-day basis, the heart. It's also the place for Christian where God now dwells. Think about that. God dwells in our hearts. He takes the center stage, the most highest priority in our lives for a Christian in the heart is reserved for God and God alone. And God's call to us into this new Christian life following Jesus, listen, it's not to enhance the life that we had before. It's not to like improve the ruined life, but it's actually to completely replace it with a new life that Jesus offers us. This is what Paul's getting at when in verse 20 says, when he's speaking, he's writing to these Christians who should know better. He says, look, verse 20, that is not the way you learned in Christ. Not that, that old way. You have learned something new in Christ. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. To learn Christ. It's an interesting phrase he has in verse 20. It's to come in contact with the truth. We could, let's just say that. To learn Christ is to come in contact with reality, with the truth of how things are. It's to, to come to grips for us with the truth of who we are as well, our baptized self. Do you remember? Maybe we need to do another baptism so we can just get this fresh water on our face. And we can remember that we've been buried in sin and raised to new life in Christ. That's how we learn Christ. And our kids even now are in their classrooms learning what it meant to be baptized, as all of us continue to do. To learn Christ, the truth that we have in Jesus, learning this new way of life that we have in him. But it's, if you look at even just the baptism image, you notice that we're not just born again. We don't just come out of the water to life, but we're actually buried. There's a death that's happening. It's a funeral and a birth right beside each other. This is the picture that we have of conversion. The watery grave of baptism reflects our repentance and our being unified with Christ's overcoming of death, his burying of death, trampling of death with death itself. And then the resurrection coming out of the water. We see the whole story of what it means to be brought into this new life and born and learning Christ. And I say that because it's super important for us to know that the the things that we need to stop in our life, to repent from, to turn away from, we don't just stop those things. They're not just put to death, but they're also replaced with something new, 
Something new is brought to life in us. You become a child now of what is good and righteous and holy. That's who you are, church. And I think my my theory, I don't know, maybe it's a bad theory, but I think Paul is making this point in like four verses and he's like, you know what? I just need to make this super plain because I think maybe I'm flying at 30,000 feet and I need to like show exactly how this hits the ground in the Christian life. And so we get this huge section of here's what I'm talking about from Paul in six concrete examples, this new way of life. And again, not to be legalistic and not to give you a, a checklist of things that you've got to like sort out, but really in order to give you a for instance of what a new life in Jesus looks like. And in fact, if you think about it, if you read it this way, he's describing not some theory or an ideal or some sort of religious aspiration. He's describing the heart of Jesus, isn't he? Maybe even from a negative perspective. Look, this is who Jesus is. He's not these things. Of course he's not. Now that you're in Christ, can't you see the heart of Jesus and his invitation. I'm going to walk through this, but I want you to hear this not as some sort of like eye rolling. Oh my gosh, how are we ever supposed to deal with this kind of stuff? But it's actually an invitation to align all of your life, all of yourself, even the deep seated things in your imagination and your desires to bring those into alignment with this new life you have in Jesus. So Paul makes this plain. Verse 25, don't lie good start. Speak the truth instead. You see how he's not saying stop lying. He's saying, actually, when you stop lying, you have, you're left with telling the truth. Speak the truth. Man, we could preach a whole sermon on just this, right? Especially nowadays. Christians, don't lie. Speak the truth. Verse 26 and 27, don't fly off in anger and don't nurse ungodly, self-serving rage and anger within you. Don't harbor that. Don't nurse that. Reconcile it. Don't let the devil take advantage of your anger in secret. But instead, you know what? Get angry about the stuff that actually matters to the kingdom of God. Verse 28, don't steal or mooch from other people, but work hard and give generously. Instead of making a habit of receiving what you need, because and we all got needs, trust me, I get it. Instead of making a habit of receiving what you need from others, become the kind of person who can give to those who are in need. Maybe we could translate that even a little bit more in the church. Don't just expect to come here on Sunday and be served by people. Chip in, serve. You, this church is the benefactor of like seriously generous people in all kinds of ways. People pray for you. People set up your chairs. People are giving the, of their own money to contribute to this community. Grow up, contribute, join in. This is a life in Jesus. And we're not doing it out of, well, Father Sean preached and so I feel bad and I got it. No, these people genuinely love to do that because in Jesus, they found that giving is actually like really fulfilling. It's bringing our lives into alignment with his. And wouldn't you know, we find life there. We actually do. This community is a great example of that. Verse 29 and 30, don't use your mouth for evil. Don't hurt others with your words, whether spoken or typed. Can we say that or texted? Instead, encourage, cheer, empower others, comfort people, inspire. That's what Christians 
do. In verse 30, uh, 31, don't be a jerk, basically, right? Or in secretly, don't be a jerk in your heart and then put on a face in front of other people acting like you're not a jerk behind the scenes. No, Christians aren't jerks. Don't be a jerk. In fact, be genuinely kind to others. And when I, when I say genuinely, and I think this is what Paul's getting at, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna spoil it if I mention it too soon. But what he's really getting at here is from the inside out, become the kind of person who can genuinely and deeply be kind because Jesus has been kind to you. And that changes everything. Think of the kindness that God has extended to you. I think we can afford to be kind to others based on that, right? From the inside out, walking in love as Christ did for you. Verse three in chapter five, don't make light of sex or our bodies. Don't joke around, don't talk silly like the ESV translated about sex and the use of our bodies. Using them outside of the God-purposed context of a loving, holy matrimony, Paul says. Sex, our bodies, these are all really wonderful, great gifts from God, but they're to be used according to God's purposes, not just to serve ourselves. We, we're not allowed as Christians to use other people for our own satisfaction. That's not at all what Christians do. In fact, we're the kinds of people who follow a person who has given up his own body that we would have life, right? You see that? Verse five, Paul closely pairs the lusts of bodies. This is really interesting. We, we could talk all day about sexuality and bodies, but Paul so regularly pairs the lust of the body with the lust of wealth in verse five, greed. Well, I mean, Sean, maybe I don't give my money, but at least I'm not sleeping around like those, those heathens. Paul says, you can't, you can't even say that actually. None of those whether you're using your body in ways you shouldn't or whether you're not generous at all and you don't give of your wealth, none of those, listen, will have a share in the kingdom of God. None will have a share. Wake up. This kind of levels the whole playing field, doesn't it? Of those of us who might think, you know, I'm like, not terrible. I've got something squared away. Ah, I don't know. Now we can all hear this these things that Paul's giving to us is this laundry list of like Christian behavior management. You guys get your stuff together. Don't do that stuff. Get it right. And maybe even as I'm going, some of you are already checked out like, oh, this is such like hard to hear moralism, Sean. This is tough. But these aren't a list of do's and don'ts that keep us from the good life. And I think that's part of the assumption that when we hear these things, we think all these things that are gonna keep me from having a good time. This isn't a prescription for a good life. No, it's a description of what it looks like when people have been rescued by Jesus and their hearts have been renovated and they ask questions like, Lord, what pleases you? Because I know that's where the good life is. It's a complete reversal in all of that. And if you think that, oh man, well, it's easy for Paul to say some of this stuff. Not so. Consider his context. When in the Roman culture, it was totally rife with immorality. Abuse, orgies, prostitution, greed, slavery, ethnic hatred, lying, violence, manipulation of the worst kind, coercion, you name it, 
It was present in Paul's context where these early churches are being planted. So we can't read Paul as just being legalistic, but he's actually being quite pastoral, saying, friends, you are the called out ones. I know the rest of the world does this as status quo and it is acceptable, but you are people who have been rescued by Jesus and you've been renovated from the inside out. Let me just describe, let me paint a picture for you of what it looks like when a people cooperate with the will of God. You've been called out from sin and death and called into a life with Jesus. So live that way. Be yourself, church. The Christian life, I think, uh, I'm, I'm figuring out. I'm, I'm not that old, but I'm getting there. Um, the Christian life is not something that we drift into, that we kind of trip over something and fall into. It doesn't happen by accident. Holiness, like goodness, charity, mercy, forgiveness, kindness, those aren't things that we just kind of accidentally take on and acquire. We don't just accidentally become those processes. But what I'm realizing in in just Sean McCain's life, it is a long, super humbling process that's very, very intentional to cooperate with Jesus again and again and again. And it's not perfect at all, but it's intentional. That's why every week we get on our knees and say, Lord, we want We want that good life with you again. Would you renovate our heart once again? Again and again, that humbling process. It actually opens up for us this space for the grace of God to come and fill us, the spirit of God to enable us to actually cooperate with his will. We're also not passive bystanders of a sanctifying work that God does in us despite us. We don't just kind of sit around for our whole life and hope that sanctification just happens. It's not magic. Coming up and receiving Holy Eucharist, Christ is really present, but you actually have to cooperate and discern with his presence. You can't just come up and take this like spiritual pill that's gonna change something in your life. There's an intention behind it. There's an awareness and a presence to it. People ask me all the time, how do we know Jesus is really present in the whole Eucharist? And I think a way more interesting question is, are you present to him when you receive Holy Eucharist? Is your life really present to him when you receive Holy Eucharist? Are we cooperating with him? Friends, the good news about what Paul is writing to us and even the receiving of communion and even the whole service that we have, the good news about this is that God is present with us and he's so eager to pour out his grace in our lives if we would genuinely receive it and cooperate with him. We are no longer enslaved to the old self. We're no longer enslaved to those habits of sin. We're no longer condemned in our hearts to be those kinds of people who are judging and angry and hurtful. We're no longer those people. That person has been put to death. Instead, we've been freed. We've been set free in Jesus to become the kinds of people whose lives are genuinely beautiful, like Jesus, whose lives in South Austin are like a sweet fragrance. Oh, wow, (laughs) those people, how wonderful. Can you imagine that? A whole community of people whose lives are sweet fragrance to our neighbors. Oh man, I'm so glad my neighbors are Christian. Can you imagine someone saying that? And all of this, it doesn't happen 
on accident, but Paul urges us, be imitators of God. Do it. And if you're not able to do it somehow, or maybe you don't know what to do, hang around the people that are next to you. Imitate them as they imitate God. I remember the first time that I walked into a church with a liturgy, I was totally lost. Michelle and I were like, what is this? This is crazy. And I know some of you have come to this church and you're like, he's wearing a dress, there's smells and bells and huge candles and everybody's doing strange things with their bodies. What is up with this? By the way, August 26th, uh, we have a liturgy tour. You should come to that. But I remember being in there the first time and thinking, this is just, just bonkers. I don't know, they, they're doing this. When do you do this or that? I what do I do with my hands? You know, you just, you just feel awkward and totally lost. But what I did and what so many of you do when you come to a church like this, what do you do? You mimic other people, right? You imitate the people who are next to you. I remember kind of acting like, you know, I got this. I don't need to imitate. But out of my peripheral vision, which is pretty sharp, I could see when things are happening, what, what's going on. You start to learn the motions, right? When the cross comes, bow. I bow, of course. I know how to do that. I'm on the inside of this. I get it. People make the sign of the cross, so I did the same thing. But these people who I was mimicking were mimicking others. They were mimicking, actually, generations past. This is an interesting thought. Not only generations past, but they are imitating people globally who are part of this Christian family. And this Christian family who we're imitating now, people who are alive, maybe people who are just even recently passed, they are all imitating an ancient church who are imitating the apostles who are imitating Jesus. So if all of this you're thinking, I don't even know where to begin, oh, it's so, so rich, it's so good to learn to worship here with your brothers and sisters and not as just kind of a go through the motions kind of thing, which sometimes that happens, that's okay. But as people who are really present to the reality that God is actually coming in power to renovate our hearts and our lives take a certain shape, our actions begin to be formed in different ways. And to be honest, it looks a lot of like what we do in the liturgy, embracing the bodies of other people, showing kindness and reverence when we reconcile with them at the peace. Even marking our own bodies with the sign of the cross is a way of saying, yes, amen, Lord. Make it true even on this body and all of its habits and all of its sins and all of its vices. Lord, yes, that blessing, I want it on me. Amen. So many ways for us to begin imitating God, even by learning to worship. But all of this on the outside, it drills down to something deeply uh, seated in us on the inside, and that is our heart. Paul says, learn to love, live in love. How? It's just the same way Christ did, laying down his life for us as a, as a sacrifice to God, like that. Learn to live in love. Open up your heart, hand it to the Lord, and say, Lord, would you make something beautiful of this control room of my life, this heart of mine? Replace this heart of stone with a heart of flesh. Friends, I know that in hearing this, uh, already we're thinking of ways that we might offer the Lord our hearts and be truly renovated from the inside out. Um, but we're not gonna be perfect. I mess it up a lot. I get that. But we are the ones who believe that Jesus isn't just a historical figure, but is still alive. We're the ones who believe that we are united with him in baptism. 
We're the ones who believe that he gives us his body, even this morning, and fills us with his spirit, making us living members of himself. We believe this as Christians. And in those ways, Jesus makes us holy. He makes us his church. This is who we are. So in that context, we can really hear Paul's words saying, be yourself, church. You've been made holy by a loving God who is actively at work renovating your heart. Cooperate with him and allow your life to be changed from the inside out. Man, that our lives would be changed like that. Can you imagine? That our lives would become this sweet fragrance to our neighbors and to God, just like Jesus. As we do, as we embark on this, that old self begins to shed. Even in our, in our weakest intention, Lord, I want to begin to follow you in these ways, our old self begins to shed. And those old ways we willingly leave behind, that we have to let go of, that we have to leave behind, we become more and more excited to do so because we have tasted and seen just how good life with God really is. Amen? Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.